Hey everybody, Joel here at the top of the show. Troy and I are off this week, but you, dear listener, are benefiting from it because we are releasing part two of our Church of Ethiopia deep dive. We released part one of this series. One, there's a, it's a three-part series. Part one of it came out about two months ago. If you have not heard that, strongly recommend you go back and listen to that because this one builds on uh, the information that's in that one. Troy is taking us through the journey of what the Church of Ethiopia was, how did it come about, how did it become so powerful, and what its eventual downfall is going to be. Patreons have had access to this for a couple weeks now, but we thought it was just too interesting to keep bottled up, so we wanted to release uh, this part two of three out to the masses. So if you've ever even been slightly curious about the Church of Ethiopia, this series is for you. So again, here's part two of the Church of Ethiopia Deep Dive. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts Deep Dive Edition. Yeah, Troy, we're back for uh, uh, the next part, the next segment in our Church of Ethiopia extravaganza here. We did a part one. If you haven't listened to that already, definitely go back and and listen to that. It gives us kind of our backstory and our setup for uh, where the Church of Ethiopia came from. And uh, if you... if you don't know what the Church of Ethiopia is, because because I this you know the past few weeks I've been chatting with people and we've gotten a lot of great feedback. A lot of people, uh, you know, really excited that we're focusing content on this because it is something that a lot of people know about. It's also something that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, and for me, I feel like the Church of Ethiopia was it. It almost had like the lost city of Atlantis vibe to it. Like when I would yeah. hear about it growing up, this like this mythical. Christian nation that was, you know, reformed way before any reformation came along and and it was this this interesting empire that has been it long long ago died out and has been completely forgotten, but yet, you know, we see references to it throughout all of history, uh, which makes you wonder, you know, if it was so big and grand, what happened to it? Where is it, you know, why, why did it die out? Why is it all gone? Why don't we hear about it today? Uh, all these questions were something that I was always fascinated to know more about, and that's what we aim to remedy with this deep dive series that we're doing. Again, last uh, segment of our Church of Ethiopia deep dive, we talked about the foundation of it, how it became a Christian nation, and mm-hmm. now we're rolling into the next segment. Segment, Troy, give us give us a quick summary of of what sure. you explained to me this last segment, and you know, set up what we're about to talk to today. I feel like what we, I I think if I could say it in this short statement, Ethiopia gets kind of a slow start, you know, it doesn't until Frumentius, the missionary arrives, well, not really a missionary, he ends up becoming a missionary, but he was just a young boy um, that was taken slave. He brings the official empire into Christianity in the 300s, and then eventually the whole kingdom becomes Christian, but as she becomes more Christian, as the tribes and everything convert, at the same time, we see Ethiopia being pushed out of the Church of the West over this huge disagreement. And I did want to emphasize some of our listeners, uh, there was a, that was kind of an area we got feedback on. Uh, the Catholic Church reconciled with Ethiopia in 553. So it was a century where they were kind of on the outs. They were let back in, just like the rest of the churches of Alexandria. So uh, it wasn't a permanent thing, but it was definitely a hundred-year disagreement. But all these things served to further isolate and make uh, Ethiopia this kind of Atlantis-style amazing kingdom, powerful, militarily above her neighbors, a great trade empire that the Persians said was one of the best of the world, one of the best empires of the world, beautiful, all these great things. But throughout her story, she just keeps getting further and further and further pushed away from everybody else that we know, Right. And eventually, uh, when Islam rises, Islam, a very militaristic uh, religion, just shoves and takes over everything and completely cuts little Ethiopia off uh, from her friends and neighbors, her allies, her people. And uh, that's kind of where we left her with Islam beginning to rise. And you would think that what I'm about to tell you next is that what really crashes the Aksum Empire ends this almost... 1500 year 
I mean, really a lot older than the Roman Empire style empire uh, and kind of takes out of existence. Would you would think would be Islam, uh, but it is not. And I'll get to that in just a second. But that's kind of where we're at. She gets cut off from the sea and the 700s, which when you're a trading empire, it is not good to be cut off from the sea. That does happen due to Islam. Uh, the Islamic armies cut her off. And so she's she at one point in the beginning of our story, she kind of straddled part of the Middle East and part of Africa. Um, but by this point in our story, the Axum Empire is squarely relegated to Africa. It's cut off from the coast. And in the 800s, she's going through just a real major decline in power. She's still strong. She's still a nation that matters, uh, but not as much on the world scene. At the same time, Islam is battering up against the Byzantine, Byzantine Empire, shoving them up north. The Islam is spreading into Europe. Uh, so Christianity is not at her strongest point right now. And in Ethiopia is feeling that just as much as anybody else's. Okay. Now, another okay, thing okay. to... Re- Go ahead. So, so just so I can paint the picture in my mind right now, uh, as as a summary, we got Axum Empire is the same thing as the Ethiopian Empire, right? Yeah, absolutely. Axum is, is the Ethiopian people, right? Per, no, I mean, we're going to get technical, but Axum Empire as we know it is what we think of as Ethiopia today. But this right. empire technically predates the Ethiopia we have today. And that's important because today we're going to talk about how a new group of people kind of take over and then a, and it gets a little crazy. So again, you're thinking of the same people, but also this is not the same exact country. You know, the mm-hmm. United States of America is founded in 1776, right? The people who lived in America before were British colonialists, but they're still kind of the Americans. You're kind of looking at a similar situation here. Mm-hmm. And, and we're, up to about the 800 right now yeah. 800s yeah okay so so from roughly kind of like 200 AD to now Axum Empire's been chilling and, and yeah. you know running they up got against founded a little... probably in the 400s BC even and so right around the same time the Roman Empire is coming on the scene the Axum comes into the scene and they outlasted the Roman Empire by four or five hundred years um, but we're about to see how they fall apart and I told you Islam was important, and Islam is important. But if you remember, there was one other group of people I told you in the Axum Empire that kind of made the Axum Empire a unique and strange empire. Do you remember who they were, Joel? Nope. (laughs) So the Jewish Empire uh, that's inside of the Axum Empire, and this is where they become really important to our story. So let's kind of take a moment to ask ourselves the question, where did this Jewish kingdom come from? Because right around this time and through this time, there's a group of Jewish people who live inside the Ax- who live inside the lands of the Axum Empire, but they kind of decide they're their own thing and they are their own kingdom and they run their own show. And they eventually will give a name to themselves that is known to history as the Beta Israelites. But at this time, they're not quite there yet. They no, sorry, you, you say at this time you're still talking about 800s, yeah, 800 900s. Because you're in the 900s, I mean, where this is all about to come to an end. We talked about there being a big Jewish population, you know, yeah. in the in the first century, there, especially with our yeah. with our eunuch, right? Yeah, and they've so been there the whole time. So, they, yeah, there's been a huge Jewish population there in Ethiopia, and now several hundred years later, they're deciding we're going to do our own thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so what's interesting about this group is if you were looking, remember when I said Ethiopia is in the Middle East and in Africa, where you would expect me to say the Jewish people are located is in the Middle East, right? Because that's where they are today. And that's where they were historically. This group of Jewish people lives in the mountains of Ethiopia on the African side. And so one of the great questions is like, where did this group of people even come from? Uh, No one, of of course, as with all these things, no one knows. Um, It's a mystery why there's this large group of Jewish people inside of Ethiopia. But the best, you know, we talked about it before, what are Jewish people doing here? But this particular group of Jewish people, I think probably came from Jeremiah's group of people who left uh, Israel. The reason I think that is because if you recall in your Israelite church history, you know, your well, not Bible history, uh, Babylon comes, destroys Israel, right? Takes the people back captive. Well, there's a group of them left in Israel at that time, and they decide to, and this is like the end of Second Kings, they decide to overthrow their ruler. And then after they do that, they realize, oh, shoot, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come after us. And what do we do, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah is like, whatever you do, 
don't go to Egypt, stay here and just live in the land and trust in God's promise. And they go, okay, we're going to Egypt and Jeremiah, we're taking you with us basically. And Jeremiah gets dragged to Egypt and it's terrible. And they're, you know, they're going, you know, and Jeremiah the whole way is like, you are just so dumb. Everything I tell you to do, you do the opposite of. Um, and they get to Egypt and eventually, according to history, Nebuchadnezzar does come down to Egypt and basically is like, how dare you run from me to this old shattered empire? I'm going to smash Egypt and deal with you. And he does. But some of them seem to have gotten to the southernmost part of Egypt. Now, this was legend for thousands of years that at the very bottom of Egypt, some of the Israelites had escaped there. But there was no evidence until not that long ago, archaeologically, they found it. And they found an island where there was basically a version of the Jerusalem temple there with a bunch of idols inside of it because they that's how they worshipped. And a document saying, this is where the Jews worshipped until the riot when we all you know attacked them and ran them out of town. And so at some point, the Jews were there worshiping a very similar style to what they had in Jerusalem, but with idols, of course. And it was at the very southern tip of Egypt. That group, we don't know what happens to them. But sometime, not too long afterwards, another group of people show up in Ethiopia. We'll look at a map. You go south of Egypt, and where do you land but Ethiopia? And we have this group of Jewish people. And the other reason it's probably this group is because this group of Jewish people that are living in Ethiopia don't have all the books that the people back in Israel have. They don't have like Esther and they don't follow the practices of the people who came back from Babylon and came back to Israel and refounded it again, you know, Nehemiah and all that. This group that's living in Ethiopia doesn't do things like that group of people living in Israel. They're still Jewish. They have the Old Testament, um, or sorry, I should say they have the Ten Commandments. They say they're followers of Moses, but they're not worshiping like the Israelites that returned from exile. And so that's probably the best case for why they came from Jeremiah. Some people think they got there from back in the plague days, like when you know Moses was leaving them out of Egypt. Maybe some of them kind of went south, ignoring Moses and landed in Ethiopia. They got lost. Others, yeah, exactly. Uh, others say you know that they came from the dispersion. Whatever the case is, I, I think the Jeremiah group is probably the most likely case of what happened because of just how similar what they're missing seems to be what would be missing if you went with Jeremiah to Egypt and went south. But regardless, this group of people exists. And guess what, Joel? If you recall, I told you that the Ethiopians believe they are descendants from Solomon. Well, you wouldn't believe it, but so does this Jewish little Jewish kingdom. They also happen to believe that they're the descendants from Solomon. And so you have two groups of people living on top of each other, both thinking they're God's special people. They're surrounded by Muslim enemies. They're surrounded by pagan enemies. And both of them think that their kings are... Uh, the descendants of Solomon, what a, you know, what a great coincidence that they would happen to be right on top of each other. And it is a very unique group of people. Uh, and the reason this is important is because one of these Jewish people ends up, or at least as the legend goes, it's very likely one of them ends up becoming the queen. Now, there are, there are about four different stories as to what happens there's the one story that's like look maybe a pagan maybe a muslim maybe a jewish person did it you know the scholars they never want to commit to anything so like we don't know somehow it ended and someone seemed to be responsible if we ignore the scholarly take and we get to the story side there's three different versions of this the first is that this jewish woman who becomes queen uh ends up kind of taking over getting into the throne getting thrown him, and then she takes her revenge on the ethiopians for putting taxes on the Jewish people, for treating that little Jewish enclave poorly. And so she kind of flips the script on them and she starts attacking and burning churches and destroying the Ethiopian armies and get, basically tries to rid Christianity of Ethiopia. And the thing is, there's a lot of evidence that that is actually kind of what she did because there are we found like literally churches burnt down and some of the ruins and stuff like we can see that there was something that did happen around that era when it would be expected and so there's a lot of evidence that yeah it's some some woman you know not some woman but somebody took over and started persecuting the churches at least for a time and it seems to you know that seems to parallel the story and again ethiopia ends not long afterwards so that could have been what 
happen. Now, they say that this woman, who they would have also claimed is one of the descendants of Queen Sheba, comes down from this reign of Solomon line, takes over Ethiopia, and is basically just getting the proper retribution, you know, for what happened. And I'm I'm not so sure. But there's a more colorful version of the story, uh, which is that she was a Christian princess, and then she became Jewish, and then she somehow gathered an army to fight what was left of the Christians, and her army was so big that she had each of her soldiers throw a rock into a pile, and that pile was so big that by the time it was done, it was a new mountain that had formed in Africa, <laughs> which I don't think was ha- what exactly happened, but I kind of like the story. Yeah, it's a good and legend. She, it's a nice story, right? It's a nice story. And she went through and she burnt the churches, raised the funeral markers, killed the Christians wherever she could. And she was this big, you know, bad woman named Queen Gudit. And she was a real nasty piece of work who had a vengeance on the Christians. But when she died, uh, they managed to, whoa, she tried to get it, but she couldn't. They pulled the Ark of the Covenant out. Everyone gathered around it and her family became Christian. But at this point, all of the Ethiopian um, acts and then by like family what? What? airline was you over. Glossed, you glossed over a lot just then. You said <laughs> she became a Christian and and no, out she the the- was a Christian, became Jewish, decided to wipe out all the Christians. Okay, failed to do so, and when she died. Her family was like, we're going to get rid of, finish the job. And then the Ethiopian Christians that survived pulled out the Ark of the Covenant and were like, we still have the Ark. And they go, oh, my goodness. And all these, this whole whole family becomes Christian. And then a new Christian empire forms. (laughs) That's their story. That's one of their stories of what occurred here. And that's the thing, like they claim she went after the Ark of the Covenant and was determined to find it. And their claim, Ethiopia is firm, that we hid it from her and we brought Mm -hmm. it back to Ethiopia's power after we died. Regardless of what happens, so regardless of which of these stories are true, it is true that she she hated Christianity from every account seems to say that. And it is true that after she died, her family did become Christians because the next phase of Ethiopia is a Christian kingdom. And so even though she tried to get rid of it, it failed. But that, but Joel, I have not given you the most colorful story. And let me tell you, this one is, is a lot more colorful. So let's get into it. So then there's the third version of the story. And this one is wild. So there was a, a priest who worked at the temple. And he, he knew where the Ark of the Covenant was, of course. And he fell in love with a Jewish prostitute named Gudit. And she loved him. He loved her. He wasn't supposed to, but he loved her. And she asked for a present. And she said, I really want something from the Ark of the Covenant. You say you guys have it. Please give me something. And so he sneaks into the room where they keep the Ark of the Covenant. He cuts a little piece of golden cloth off, gives it to her as a present. She loves it. She goes to a tailor and gets shoes made out of it. And she's wearing it around town. Very excited, right? Well, everyone sees her wearing a piece of the Ark of the Covenant and is not happy. They go to her and they go, you seduced one of our priests. You're, you know, a Jewish prostitute. How could you wear the Ark of the Covenant on your feet? That's horrible. And so they grab her. They, and if this, you have children in the room, um, they cut off her chest, is how we'll put it. And they sell her as a slave to Yemen and say, get out of here, basically. Yemen, you know, is a country kind of area across the sea. And they think that's the end. They think we're done with her. All right, we've, we dealt with that one. Not so fast. She is still um, living her life as a slave. She seduces the person they sell her to, which is a general. He leaves his wife for her. Um, and then she you know, meets the prince of Yemen, and she ends up leaving the general, goes and marries him, becomes the queen of Yemen, gets her armies together, comes back to Ethiopia, takes over Ethiopia, burns everything down, and reigns as queen for 40 years. And so it's similar to the other stories, destroys the Christians, hates them, but this time she came over from Yemen with a giant army. And what's kind of crazy is that third version that I think is quite wild is actually has a little bit of outside evidence um, because archaeologists have discovered that the queen of Ethiopia at that time did send like really nice presents to the princes of Yemen on multiple occasions, including like, we found these zebras, I send them to you, you know, w- w- your highness and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So she had a close relationship with Yemen, which is really weird. 
that's the third version of the story. Certainly more colorful uh, than some of the other ones. Yeah, I mean, zebras are a pretty good gift, so that that would probably work. <laughs> There's a letter in Alexandria as well that basically, again, corroborates that some queen took over where they're like, where it says something like there was an issue passing the throne on to these two brothers. They were fighting a war. Anyway, now a queen is ruling and she hates Christianity. So they were sending out a help signal to Alexandria. And when Alexandria tries to respond, they go like, is everything okay? The lights are out in Ethiopia. The Ethiopian kingdom is gone. Whatever happened, as somehow the bloodline of the Ethiopian kings, that Solomononic one that's been so important, they get backseated. They don't get completely wiped out, but they get kind of pushed off to the side. And they're kind of set aside. Whoever this woman is who destroys everything, and actually one of the weird parts too, is Ethiopia actually grew under her leadership. Like there's evidence that they moved kind of southward, deeper into the Sahara, that more nations became Christian when it was all said and done because of the tribes down there became Christian. And, and she kind of moved away from the coast and moved south. And eventually she dies. Her family becomes Christian. And that's the end of the Aksumite Empire. This woman ended it, ruined it, destroyed it, uh, threw it away. And the new family that takes over is called the Zogwe. And the Zogwe dynasty is quite sadly... Oh, I actually forgot to mention one more thing about Judith, uh, Queen Judith, that makes this story really confusing and really hard to understand. Is, Joel, if you can believe it, this actually happened to Ethiopia twice. So the queen in these two stories, his name is Gudit. But in the 1500s to 1600s, a Jewish queen allies with the Muslim neighbors and nearly takes over Ethiopia, nearly can't kills all the Christians. And her name is Judith. And so if it's possible for history, you know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I guess that's quite literally what happened here. And did that affect the retelling of the stories? It must have. But there again, there's a lot of evidence that a queen took over and killed everybody. Maybe they added the name later or before. I don't know. But it is strange, right? Yeah. Like that's just how many times are Jewish queens going to rise up? At least two, maybe three times in the history of Ethiopia. So again, when I told you, uh, listener early on, pay attention to this you know, Jewish empire. Don't sleep on it. It literally ended up being, from what we can tell, the reason the Aksumite Empire came down. Um, personally speaking, I uh, I don't think it was probably the Jewish prostitute army one, um, just because that's a pretty outlandish, pretty out there story. But history has some crazy stories. So yeah. I think it's probably the second one. Um, but that, again, you don't know for sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting how they have the Ark of the Covenants in it. Yeah, they're, the Ark of the Covenant one is a real big deal. Um, they they it just like shows back up every once in a while where they're like, and the Ark of the Covenant's here still. Don't you forget it. And Ethiopia to this day claims they have the Ark of the Covenant. They have it under lock and key. They have men with machine guns who stand around it all day long, protecting it. Uh, you know, and you're not allowed to see it. So uh, no one's allowed to go check and verify if it's in there, uh, which makes it a little mysterious. And it actually plays into our proto-reformation that we'll talk about when we get the when we get there, Ooh. when we get there, when we get there. But it actually plays into effect because one of the things that the that the Ethiopian Martin Luther, if I can call him that, one of the one of his theses that he'll you know nail on the door again. He doesn't actually do it like Martin Luther, but very similarly. Uh, is Ethiopia doesn't have the Ark of the Covenant, by the way. Like that's, hmm. I, I don't think that's there. And another one of them is going to be, I don't think the kings are descended from Solomon. And so we need to stop this. And I don't think the priests are Levitical priests. And uh, you could just see how in this story, that would be very controversial to tell them because you can see how important it is to them and they're in their mythology and in their, their walking through life, how important it is to them that this is who they are. So okay. just, just to clarify, in, in all of these tellings of this queen the the you know these story variations of her she's killing all these christians is is she doing this as a jew that doesn't like christians yes she's trying to wipe out the christians because she wants to to bolster the jewish bloodline there is yeah that, yeah is that her? she's moving she her goal is to get rid of the christians and move you know, the country into judaism and in pretty much all of the credible accounts the irony is even though she um, kills a bunch of Christians, her family ends up becoming Christian as soon as she dies. And to rule this land, they have to be Christian. And so what she ends up ironically doing is actually not getting rid of the Christians, but getting rid of her, you know, clan's Judaism, because after mm. that, they're no longer Jewish. So it, it did end up backfiring um, in the long term for her. 
and again, and there are some scholars who go, "There's no Jewish queen. That never happened." You know, this is maybe a Muslim took, you know. So of course, so someone tried to kill all the Christians. With, it seems like, but it was very likely. All of the credible accounts always point to it coming from that Jewish kingdom within the kingdom. So I, I think it's very likely that is at, at least that part is true. Don't think it was probably the. Ark of the Covenant shoe wearing prostitute, but it's such a colorful story you can't you can't skip it either. So okay, this so is she's gone. All of the she's the... gone. Axumite Empire is officially over, and it's kind of like when Rome ended. The Roman area is still around. People are still there. The Roman roads are still there. It's like, well, we're still kind of Rome. What do we do, right? But new people are in charge, and that's what happens. A new group of people come in. They're called the Zogwe. And they take over, and to be honest, they're—I mean—they're a nice uh, group of people. For everything I read about them, they seem great. All two pages of history that remembers them. <laughs> the problem is, the people who come after them don't like them, and they go out of their way to just eliminate the Zogwe, and which is too bad because we don't really get to know anything. And keeping records in Sub-Saharan Africa, I mean. You know, it's not the best place to keep them. So records are already pretty sketchy down there, and what's left of them. And they're not trading with the Christians. The Christians can barely reach them anymore. You know, once in a while, somebody will go to Europe or somebody will go to Jerusalem and somebody will come back. But like, for the most part, these guys are really cut off at this point. Even Alexandria is not hearing nearly as much from them. They do still ordain their priests. So they're still in charge of Ethiopia, but it's not, it's not really well watched and well maintained. And so, you know, we'd like to know more about this Zagwe dynasty. What we do know is pretty good. They moved the kingdom south. Again, this kind of growing away from the coast. We're no longer straddling the Middle East and Africa. We're officially really moving into kind of Southern Africa. Uh, Zogwe seem like pretty cool people. We don't know how many kings they had. We don't know how many queens they had. We don't even officially really know how long they were in charge. Like we know around 960 AD, they kind of come in. And we also know around 1260 AD, they're done. But we don't really know officially when did the Aksumite, like last king, officially kind of pass the baton off and all that stuff. It's not really exactly known because the Aksumite family lives on. And even though they're not in charge because of that queen that broke everything, they're still in the background. Like It's very, very confusing. But the Zogwe period comes in and they build... Joel, some of the coolest churches ever. Oh. Like if you go to Google Images and you type Zogwe churches, you're going to see something that is really, really unique to history. And this was they're not the this is not the only Ethiopian monuments that look like this, but they are really, really interesting. They they kind of dig straight into the ground. Now what happens is uh, they, and they're all Christians. This is a Christian dynasty, just like the Aksumite are. They're just the Zogwe do not claim to descend from Solomon. That that whole thing is not them. They're like that was the old guys. We're not those guys. But they have one king that is that does ride out. You know, as this is a very misty fog of war over history, we don't know much about them. There's one guy that we can really point to and say we know about him. His name was Labila. His name meant the bees recognize his sovereignty. Because supposedly when he was born, his mother gave birth to him. Literally a large cloud of bees flew into the room and landed on him without stinging him and stayed there for a while before they left. His mom names him Labila. The king, the bees recognize the sovereignty. And she goes, those bees that were just completely took over this hut for a while and then left. She said, that's the number of soldiers he'll command in battle, which is a cool story. Except he wasn't the firstborn son. The other brother heard that, did not like that. Uh, because in his mind, he should be reigning as king. And so when he's older and he kind of hears that story keep coming up over and over again, he decides um, as his other brother starting to come of age and his older brother's kind of like, I, I'm the guy, I'm the bee king. <laughs> you know, I'm probably going to take your place. And he poisons him. And he goes, I'm going to get rid of Labila. The poison fails. He gets very sick, though, and Labila is sick for three days straight, and he says that he had a vision, that saint, that angel Gabriel took him to heaven, showed him a new Jerusalem, and said, Labila, we want you, God wants you to build this Jerusalem in Ethiopia. You know, here are the plans. Go and do it, and go and be the king. And when he woke up after three days of being horribly sick with this vision, he gets up and goes, I'm going to be the king. He like looks, you know, he's like, he tells his family, I'm doing it. I'm going to be the king. I know what I have to do. And he runs to his brother and says, you tried to kill me, 
but it's okay because God gave me a vision. And his brother looks at him and goes, I also had a vision. We're supposed to build Jerusalem. You're the new king. <laughs> so I don't want to poison you anymore. Now, that is fantastic um, in the sense of being quite the wild story. And yet, that's what you'll see. Like what they tried to do is build something very unique. So they dug straight into the bedrock of a mountain and they just dug straight down into the ground so that if you were not, if you were walking and you looked, you would just see nothing. You would see a hill, right? You might see like a little, you could maybe with your eyes see a divot. But if you walked up to it and looked down, you would be 10 stories up and could fall a hundred feet and you would see in front of you this giant building, this giant church dug straight into the ground. And they built, I think it's nine of these buildings, all in the same mountain, all connected by catacombs and trenches, all dug straight into the earth. It's still a pilgrimage site to this day for people of the Ethiopia um, church. And it's still, a, obviously, a, a tourist site. And it's still an active you know, church for what's worth, uh, again, for the Orthodox Ethiopians. But it is a really, I was looking at the pictures of it. And I was like, I, I've been a lot of places. Yeah, I've lived in Asia. I've been to Europe. I've, I've been a few places. Joel, you've probably been a few places. But I got to say, this is kind of now on my, if I ever get to Ethiopia, hmm. list of places to go visit. Because totally, it is yeah. truly fascinating and weird looking and really kind of interesting looking. But and I kind of want to point. Are we still in the 800s here? Have we progressed a little nah, bit? No, at this point, we're actually like quite into the 1100s now. So we've moved forward. The Zagwe dynasty, this is like their, this is their height is this guy, you know, king of the bees guy um, and his brother building this uh, new Jerusalem straight into the rock of a mountain. Um, and they kind of make that their capital for a time. And the thing is, even if he didn't uh, have the vision and Gabriel didn't bring him around, um, the less fantastic version is that him and his brother go to Jerusalem. His brother never really wanted to be king, passes it to his brother, his other brother. They work together. They go to the actual Jerusalem while it's a crusader state, state, go around, come back and go, we want to build Jerusalem, but we want to build it here. But either way, the important, the important thing to kind of pay attention to is like, what is Ethiopia doing? Before, Ethiopia was like, we have Solomonic kings, right? We're descended from Solomon. We're the, we're the Israel, right? And now these new guys took over and they say, look, we're not the Solomonic kings, but we're going to build a new Jerusalem, right? We're going to go and make a new Jerusalem and it's going to be Jerusalem. It was given to us by an angel or an army of bees or whatever it is, but we're building Jerusalem and we're going to recreate what we have. And you can see just this emphasis on Ethiopia of we are the continuation of what's been happening in the Bible. And that's really important because the next phase after the Zogwe dynasty takes all that and turns it up all the way and basically combines all these factors. But the Zogwe are still, even though you would have thought this is the chance for them to detach from all of that, um, they're Christian kings. Because of Labila rebuilding this Jerusalem, because of all this stuff, they just bring it right back to that same place where we are just continuing to be Israel in a sense. Like we are still Israel. We're in the new version of it, though. And we have Jewish people. We have the people who call themselves Beta Israel over there. And we're just kind of all these things still going. And again, we're cut off from the world. We're surrounded by Muslims. But we are going to just kind of keep walking down this road. And it's worth noting, by the way, that this church structure center. Um, I, again, I don't think it was passed down to them from an angel, but science to this day does not know how they did it. There's nothing like they found other structures dug into the bedrock. That was something some of the tribes in that area did. It was something the Ethiopians did, but nothing compares to this very odd, I mean, 10 story high version of it that they did. Scientists still don't know how A, they built these things and B, how they built them so artistically because they very carefully, painstakingly built them to be beautiful. And they did it very quickly during this guy's reign. It's a bit of a scientific mystery and a very, very interesting spot that they created. Very cool. So that's the end. And, that, and, that, and we just moved 300 years forward because that's pretty much the end of the Zogway dynasty. And you're thinking that can't be all that happened. It really is though. Um, and that's because the people who came afterwards really didn't want you to remember the Zogway because they kind of see it as the 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 bad spot you know like, like every everything else in the story you'll see is going in one direction the zogways take over and their 300 year reign is although by christians is not the 
not what we want. So we're just going to kind of forget that that happened um, and move on. During this time to the Zogwe dynasty, Ethiopia was, I mean, at one point, Aksum Empire was a big empire. They started shrinking. By the time that we get to the end of the Zogwe dynasty, they are a sliver. We are, we are talking like, we, they are tiny, 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 tiny little piece of land, a little speck, a little splinter in Africa. This is without a doubt the smallest Ethiopia ever gets. I mean, it would have been so such a forgettable little fiefdom if it was in Europe, right? Like it would have just been just a little no-name place that was almost completely gone. Everywhere inside of it, kind of half attached to its beta Israel. Over here are some families that still consider themselves Axum. Like it's just a tiny little shepherd kingdom that's basically shrunken down to nothing. And so the Zagwe, though they built some really cool stuff, they were not good for the Christian kingdom when it came to maintaining the lands and keeping things going. And that's kind of where we are until the year 1270. In the year 1270, a man named Yakano Amlek takes the throne. Now, some versions are that he took the throne with a sword and basically took the Zogwe dynasty by force, stormed the castle, killed the families. Uh, the families ran to those beautiful churches to hide, and he marched into those beautiful churches and sliced them down and ended the Zogwe with a very painful blood uh, bloodbath. And that's how he took charge. A nicer version of the story is that the uh, Zogwe could tell they weren't doing as good a job, and Amde is a descendant of that family line of Solomon that we've been talking about. He's a descendant of the Aksum Empire. He's one of those family members that got, you know, saved from the purge by the evil queen. And his family line is here. And he goes, I'm going to bring Ethiopia back. And the Zagwe dynasty goes, we want the Solomon family back in charge because we're pretty much on the verge of just completely disappearing here. I don't think it was probably that because people don't usually hand the reins of power over, but it could have been a little bit of a mixture of both. He was on the rise, they were on the decline, and to save themselves maybe. Either way, this guy and his family and the reign, the new family that takes over is remotely a part of that bloodline of Solomonic people. They had kind of hidden themselves off for a while, but they're back. And it's kind of crazy to think, we've talked about the Solomonic bloodline so much. I can only say, like, if you remember Lord of the Rings, Aragorn's, you know, kind of coming back on the line. And uh, it was like Gondor hasn't had a king in 2,000 years, but he jumps back in. He's the rightful heir. Or Game of Thrones where, you know, uh, you know the, 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 the bloodline of whoever, whoever fighting for the throne. You know, there's these movies where we see that as a thing. And that's really what it is. Like, even though to us, we would look at that and go, that's crazy. They haven't even been around 300 years. Why do they have the right to rule? And yet the people saw it as a great success. Finally, you know, the Zogwe kings who are not who are not supposed to be ruling are gone. They build us the new Jerusalem. Now bring us that king from Solomon who can bring the sword and save the day, right? Like we need that resurgence of Ethiopia. And the thing is, they do it. Like, if we want to go, well, that's just crazy. I sure, I understand. But they're so successful that it is hard to deny that they pulled it off. Um, Yekano Emlik, when he takes over, is still small. But he does something very bold, which is he attacks a big Muslim city nearby. He sacks it, and he takes it into his kingdom and says, that's ours now. Well, Zagwe never really attacked anybody. The Aksum Empire has been shrinking for hundreds of years. And now he picked a fight with the Muslims, and he won. And the Muslims in the area did not like that. And they didn't like the idea that the Christian splinter, you know, this tiny little group was starting to get uh, getting a little huffed up. And so back up in Egypt, in Alexandria, where, if you recall, Ethiopia gets their ministers, uh, Egypt straight up said, Alexandria, if you, Egypt is also Muslim, and they said, Alexandria, if you send any more ordained priests to Ethiopia, you know, we'll call all your Christians, basically. You are not to help Ethiopia anymore because they decided to attack our Muslim cities. And that is not allowed. And so for the next 70 years, there will not be an ordained priest who comes to Ethiopia. And to a lot of us that, you know, if you're from a evangelical Baptist, you know, whatever background, you might not see why that's a big deal. But if you're, especially if you're a Catholic listener or somebody like that, which we don't have any of those really in the Patreon thing. But if you're one of those listeners, you know how big a deal no, that don't, is. Because don't, now there's nobody we might, here. We might. We All, might. We might. Every, I apologize. Everyone's welcome to come right and listen in. to us. <laughs> They are, they are, but I don't know of any. But if you are, yeah. write in, tell me, hey, I was wrong. We do have a Catholic in the in the Patreon, but but 
You know how big a deal that is because you know that communion now can't officially happen. Confession can no longer officially happen. And for 70 years, Ethiopia is completely cut off from her religious source. Now, this should have been a great retribution, but not too long after, a man named Amde Sion the Conqueror shows up. And now we're in the very early 1300s, though. We're trying to keep that timeline. We're in the early 1300s. We've transitioned out of the Zogwe. We're now officially into the Ethiopia as we know her kind of today. And, we're, and she calls herself Ethiopia, and she'll call herself Abyssinia. So we're in that era now. We've moved away from these other guys. We're out of the ancient days, and we're in the 1300s. And Amde Sion the Conqueror shows up. And she'll, just with a name like Amde Sion the Conqueror, what do you think this guy is going to be known for? Okay, okay, hold on. Let me back up a little bit. 1300s. <laughs> we're officially Ethiopia yes. now. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're, we're the Ethiopia that's important for our story, for sure. The people... So this 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 fellow that rolled up and attacked the Muslim area... Yeah. That now that now runs Ethiopia. What what are they... They're just called Ethiopians, I guess, at this point? Yeah, He's I mean, I think they'd be called Abyssinians, but, that, but the Abyssinia kingdom is what the Europeans end up naming Ethiopia. So, I mean, it's the same... We're talking about gotcha. the same people, as far just different as the, names. the interaction goes. Um, yeah, exactly. And how long has he been running the show before this this guy shows up? Well, this guy who's now the conqueror is like okay. his grandson. So he's, okay. you know, they've been running the show, but not for like a super long time. And this is the new, the new throne power. They're the new guys in charge. Yeah. I mean, this is the height of your, of your, uh, yeah. Like you were saying, like your house struggles as far as who's in power, especially in Europe right yeah. now, everyone's taken over each other's kingdoms and houses and claiming to the throne mm -hmm. and, uh, all of this junk. So it seems, seems fitting that it would, it would spread down to Africa as well as far as the power struggles well, there. And actually, this is a very interesting century for Africa because this is, and I, this is a little bit forward in my notes, but we're saying right now, you know, this this is a terrible century. For the 1300s are a terrible sure. century for Europe. We're talking Black Plague, 100 Years War. Uh, this is about to be as bad as it can possibly get for Europe. But it's a great century if you're in Africa, especially if you're an African um, this is a, this is the height in a lot of ways of your power. You have the Ethiopia is about to become the height of her power here. Over on the other side of Africa, the Mali Empire is about to be at her height of her power. There are other empires, the Songhai Empire, the Mena Empire. Uh, there's an empire down in south, a little bit north of South Africa that comes to power like during this era, and it'll be the height of their power. So like, it wouldn't have been a good time to be a European. Nobody wants to go back and be a European in the 1300s where there's famines and ice ages and all that. But if you could get shoved down a continent and land in Africa, you'd actually not be doing too bad. This is a good time. For the you know to be a wealthy person, you know you never want to be a peasant anywhere. But if you had to be somewhere, Africa's not a bad place to be during this era, especially for Ethiopia. But so this is an interesting, very kind of unique time, and that's the thing too. Like we think of you know if you think of Africa and you think tribes and you know animals, you are correct. <laughs> Those things are there. Uh, but there are also castles and armies and um, you know bloodlines and diplomacies and all the same things that are happening in Europe are happening here too. They're building castles, they're building temples, they're doing all the same things that everyone else has done throughout history. And the same way, if you think of medieval Europe and you think of Vikings sitting around a campfire, yeah, there are Vikings sitting around a campfire, but there's a bunch of other stuff happening in Europe too. In the same way, Africa is doing very similar things. I learned about a bunch of new kingdoms and empires I had not known before. And I have a bunch of new like castles to visit if I ever make my way to Africa. So that'll be fun. Uh, it's a very interesting time to be in Ethiopia. And Amde Sion the Conqueror brings Ethiopia to that place where they are great. Now, he does two really important things as king that sets Ethiopia up to be just this dominant force. One is kind of political, and one is religious. The first is political. He immediately centralizes an army, starts you know pulling people in, drafting them in, taxing the people to pay for a central state army. No one has done this in Ethiopia in like a thousand years. This is like something that you used to do back in Alexander the Great days. You, you're, you know, Rome had an army that stood, all these people had armies that stood, but nobody had done it in Ethiopia in forever. And Amde realized if I'm going to 
fix the problem of Ethiopia's decline. I have to have an army because we have too many people fighting us. He also was very brutal. Um, I don't know much about his background, his education, but he really kind of reminds you of an old school uh, Hannibal or, you know, Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. Like he's one of those kind of old fashioned military leaders who he's got a goal in mind and he's going to rout his enemies. He immediately starts off his very first year in power, gets his army together, he attacks three different countries all at once and has a surprising victory over all of them. He then takes those people in those countries and he forces them to migrate all over the empire and forces them to move to new locations. He's scattering them out. Why? Because it's so much harder to band together and get your people together to fight him when your people are all over the empire. You know, if your brother is in now the north part of the kingdom, you're in the south part of the kingdom, and your mom is in the west part of the kingdom, can you rise up and revolt? Because what if he kills your brother and your mother? You know, what if, you know, you're surrounded by people who don't speak your language anymore? He's completely scattered you in. You know, we mentioned in our first episode about the Damat. This was a people that lived there from time immortal back in way back in the ancient of days well they still were a family group like well tribe that existed up until this point it is Ande the conqueror who officially scatters them out of existence so like he was really reshaping and changing the landscape because he did not want to deal with revolts and rebellions or anything like that he wanted to see that ethiopia actually became powerful Amde does all of this very quickly, and he also commissions an article. Now, the way they describe it is they suddenly found this article, but it's very likely he commissioned it to be created. But suddenly there's this thing called the Kabra Nagast. I said there was a political thing he did that was building the army, and this is the religious thing he does. And that is he took that old legend of the Aksumite Empire and how they were once, you know, from descendants from Solomon, he wrote it into paper, and he said, my family is the heirs, direct descendants of that accident line all the way back to Queen of Sheba. They wrote the genealogy down. They wrote the legend down on paper, and they would say, this is now what God has done in Ethiopia. Now, no scholars believe that this is true. But he says, and the way he would say it is, this is the oral story, and we finally put it on paper. And the thing is, no scholars say the Bible is true, Right. So the same arguments that work to debunk the Bible are the same ones they're using to debunk the Nakabra Nagast, this article. But most of us would also agree that it's probably not likely that this guy was a descendant of Solomon. But whether you and I, Joel, think this guy was a descendant of Solomon doesn't matter because you know who did think he was a descendant of Solomon? The people of Ethiopia. And they see this guy forming an army, destroying nations much bigger than him, and saying, look, we found the records. We're putting it on paper now. I am Solomon's great, 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 great grandson. And I am here to bring Ethiopia into a shining new era and write Ethiopia back onto the path. You know, we once knew her as a Christian nation and she was powerful. She has fallen into decline, but we are going to fix this now. We're going to get rid of these Muslim neighbors and we're going to reign and you're going to finally have the Christian kingdom, we had the Jerusalem, you have Mia Solomon now rebirthed basically, and now we're going to bring Ethiopia into a shiny new era. And you know, if you're living in Africa surrounded by Muslims, you're not very powerful and you've been getting uh, your land taken from you for a thousand years, that's, that doesn't sound so bad, right? That's going to be a pretty tempting offer. That sounds, yeah, that sounds like an okay place, okay place to be for an Ethiopian. For sure, especially because uh, who's going to check them? Oh, yeah, the Alexandria Church can't send anybody and hasn't sent anybody in 40 years to check in on you because they can't. So, I mean, who can stop you if you declare yourself basically a god king? Who can stop you? And it's not like other people didn't do this. This is very famously what the the imp, the king of France does, Louis Fourteenth, the sun god. I am divinely ruling and God has put me here and whatever I say is what God must want me to do. Well, this is kind of very similar stuff. He then goes on a tear and completely just, I mean, very similar to Alexander the Great, just one of those stories where it, I, it, it would really make, I think, a pretty good movie. You know, in one of those movies where there's horses and riders, I mean, I don't know if they follow horses, right? but one, the, one, one of those, those army uh, movies, movies you know? with horses, you know? 
<laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. One of those kind of war movies where, like, ancient days. I'm going to kind of run through his story, but it's, it is honestly kind of cool and exciting. He, and within year five, he was challenging, like, some of the biggest countries ever. Egypt starts persecuting the Christians in Egypt, and Portugal and um, Italy kind of send a warning to Egypt, and they say, hey, back up, Egypt. If you kill our Christians, you know, we're going to invade you. And Egypt didn't take them all that seriously. They just kind of like, yeah, whatever, Portugal, whatever, you know, Italy, I, I can take you. And then Ethiopia joins and says, no, we'll join too. Again, they're nobodies. They're nothing. And Egypt's like, and what do you have to threaten me with? And Ethiopia goes, we know where the Nile is, and we're going to reroute it so you don't get any more water from it anymore. And this is literally kind of like a North Korea style thing where like this little country threatening America shouldn't scare you. But if North Korea can shoot a nuclear bomb at you, right, like that's pretty threatening. And so even though North Korea could never win in a land war against the United States, but a nuclear bomb is a pretty big deal. Ethiopia could never win in a land war against Egypt at this time. But if they rerouted the Nile, we're all going to die. And so they give up. Egypt goes, OK, we, we don't want to we don't want our Nile. Hey, well, now we're all friends here. We were just playing, you know, like, OK, we won't kill any more Christians. Tell Ethiopia not to reroute the Nile because that we cannot have that. And so, like, I mean, again, Ethiopia is punching just way above her weight class and telling countries way more powerful than her what she wants. Other Muslim countries are seeing this. They feel threatened and they start to get together and go like, we need, and I'm sure Egypt's sending money down there, like, deal with Ethiopia. We don't want the Nile to be rerouted. And so they start rising up against them. And Amde is just taking them one-on-one. Like a, like a, if this was a movie, this is that scene where the boxer just like suddenly comes out of nowhere and he's just punching and he's taking out every guy, you know, the montage moment, right? Where like every time they come up with a new group, he just knocks them down. Like one, you know, one punch takes them out. They're out of the game. Another rising star, another kind of a Muslim kingdom who's been taking is kind of forming around near Ethiopia. And you can see he's growing his empire. Ethiopia is growing their empire. And they're getting closer and closer to waging war. And they do. And for three years, they get locked in this brutal, terrible war. And all the Muslim countries are helping the Muslim because they want him to win. And they Egypt's sending money. Egypt's sending soldiers. Everybody wants the Muslim to win because they don't want the Christian kingdom to win. But when the dust settles, when the war is over, Amde takes his lands. He's the winner and he comes out on top yet again. And this guy just cannot be beaten. And again, he's telling his people, I am the great, 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 great grandson, descendant of Solomon. I am here to reign in the new Jerusalem. I am here to bring Ethiopia to glory. And none of the Muslim empires can touch me. And they don't. And he has to deal with constant betrayal, too. A good example of this was while he's consolidating the empire, um, this this Muslim king, you know, he defeats him and he takes his brother out of jail and puts him in uh, charge and says, like, hey, you, you know, I don't want to I don't hate your family. I don't want to kill your people. I'll, your brother had you in jail. I'll put you in charge. You know, how's that sound kind of thing? And uh the brother then, some of the Muslim kingdoms go to him and go, hey, you're Muslim, join us. He goes, okay, switches over and immediately revolts and tries to kill him. And stuff like that happens all the time where like he's trying to rule this very diverse people group that are Muslim against him and they're constantly rebelling and yet his army is still just clearing house. It really, reading it really reminds you of kind of the book of Joshua where like, you know, the people of Joshua are running all over defeating these people and they just kind of keep re-allying and now it's going to be five kings from the north and now it's going to be five kings from the south and now it's going to be like this. And the armies kind of slowly over time just keep getting even bigger and bigger as more people are joining together. Finally, they are just like done. They, they can see that this guy is unstoppable. And so everybody... The entire, like, this entire part of Africa comes together. All of the Muslims, I think it was over 500 tribes, nations, north, south, east, and west. Everybody agrees to one pact, destroy this Christian kingdom. And Beta Israel in the middle also goes, and we'll join the Muslims. We're going to destroy the Christians with you. We, We also won out of this, right? So they all at once declare war at the same time. And not only that, but inside the empire, several of the Muslim kingdoms he had conquered all revolt at the same time. And it's basically, according to like the numbers, Amde is well outnumbered, 10 to 1. All of his provinces are basically on fire and invasions are coming in from every direction. And this looks bad but he has one advantage and that is 
His army's already on the move. They're all gathering their armies together. So he moves north, starts just just destroying everybody to the north of him, actually makes Ethiopia connected to the ocean again for the first time since the 700s. They are, have access to the sea, which is really good because now you can trade with the what's left of the Byzantine Empire and you can trade with Europe. You have access again. He moves down. He goes to Beta Israel. He destroys Beta Israel so hard that they actually take the city that they lived in and make that their new capital. And they run these Jewish people of Beta Israel basically into the mountains, which is kind of where they'll hide out for 200 years until they come back again to try to take over for like the third time in the story. Um, but he runs them off, just completely wipes them out for a time, moves back through, and he's having to just fight one-on-one, -on -one, boom, 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 destroying these armies. Well, the armies realize Amdei is really good at this, and he can take us every time we come at him one-on-one. -on -one. And so they kind of move off all of the remaining enemies in the south and then the east kind of move off and they go off to the desert and they go, we need to form one army and not fight him one-on-one. -on -one. Because if we come at him one-on-one, -on -one, his army's well-trained. They've been fighting for like a decade. They know what they're doing. They're going to win. But if we can get together and just outnumber him like crazy, we can do this. Amde gets word. That's what they're doing. He, see, he can, you know, his messenger, his spies tell them they're all waiting in the desert till they're just too big to, you know, fight. And then they're going to march over and destroy you. And Amde goes, we're going to get to the desert and defeat them before that happens. Now, this is considered suicide because the one thing that Ethiopia has never successfully done in her entire 2000 year history has ever been leaving the Ethiopian territory and going into the sub-Saharan desert Africa and successfully winning a battle. That is like what kings do to go and die. Like that has happened multiple times where they took an army out there and they don't succeed. And Joel, I believe you've been to Africa. I have not yeah. been. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's warm. It's a little hot, yeah, it's right? It's a bit toasty, like, yeah. It is not. It's a, little, it's a little warm. It's a little dry. There's not a lot of good water out there. And you take a bunch of people in armor to fight down. Um, they, I looked at the latitude. It's about eight degrees north of the equator, which is where I lived mm. in Cambodia. And then I currently live eight degrees south of the equator. That's hot. And the desert doesn't have a lot of water. And your enemies have polluted all the wells. So you have no water. You have no food. And you're marching out to meet them in battle. It's a really bad situation. But Amde realizes if I wait till they get together, they will win. The best chance I have is meeting them in the desert. He gets there. It is brutal. It is a terrible two or three days of fighting. He gets stabbed. It's a horrible mess. But when it's over, he has won. He has killed them all. He has conquered this land. And he took, I mean, if you look at the before and after pictures of like Ethiopia in 1250, Ethiopia in 1330, it is crazy how much bigger it is now, how it is a real kingdom. And that's where it's going to be for the next couple hundred years. And he did it. And he comes back. He is, again, he's like an Alexander the Great. He has reset Ethiopia. He has, you know, punched down all those rebellious empires. And now he is set to rule over this large land. And he does for a very long time, very successfully. Now, if you listen to that story, one thing you may notice is that throughout that story, there are revolts and rebellions and people pushing back. And that's, it's not an easy area to control. And his son will also take over. His son gets a nickname. His son's nickname is the Sword of Terror. And so this is the kind of names that the rulers of Ethiopia have during the 1300s. This is the kind of people you have to be to build the kingdom in that part of Africa. One of the reasons we don't know about many of the empires of Africa, they don't last super long. It's not an easy place to build a kingdom. It's a lot of war and a lot of fighting. And you can see the amount of work it took for Amde to build that. He managed to pull it off, but not many other people really could. And so when you're looking at that era, what you can't do if you're Ethiopia is you cannot have a church split. You can't have a loss of power because you're already dealing with Muslims itching to take you over. You're also dealing with pagans, by the way. They have a lot of tribes, people down south from the jungly areas who are happy to split you apart. Um, you have a lot, and we'll talk about one that actually comes in and almost completely undoes Ethiopia. It is crazy how they sneak in and their way of destroying Ethiopia. And they're still in Ethiopia to this day. It was so successful. There's a part of Ethiopia still run by this group of people. Um, I mean, they have, he's a very 
insecure part of the world to run a kingdom there and to control it, you cannot afford to lose any power to any upstarts. And that's exactly what our proto-Reformation attempts to do. You see, we're in the middle 1300s. Our guy who starts the proto-Reformation is born in 1380. And his Reformation attempt will start in the very early 1400s in this era of this world that we just entered of just Ethiopia ruling with an iron fist. And he is, I mean, he is so similar to Martin Luther. It's insane how many similarities these guys have. But the reason his Reformation does not stick, I think, is just because he was up against a world where no one could afford to lose power, even for a minute, because you're surrounded by enemies who are waiting for you to mess up. And those emperors could not mess up because of the second they slip, and they do eventually slip, the, the Muslims are ready to take their empire from them. And that's exactly what will eventually, far down the road, happen is that they lose that little grip on power and boom, it's over as soon as it happens. And try, that's what try. happens. That's the world that our man is born into. Yeah, that, I cannot think of a better place to button up this episode as a as a great tease for what's coming next. Uh, <laughs> you, you've, you've laid all the paving stones, you've laid all the foundation to get up to what will be. So would you say Ethiopian Empire right now, it is is considered a Christian nation at this point, correct? Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course they are. They right. are Jesus loving descendants of Solomon who have built a new Jerusalem under Gabriel's command, and they are now ruling. They read the same Bible that we do. Well, I mean, you know, as much as anybody in that day does, and they have priests. They take communion. Uh, the only differences are, I mean, there are differences, but they have a replica of the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of all of their churches to represent that Ethiopia has the Ark of the Covenant. And <laughs> their priests are all Levitical, according to them. Again, so they are, they are there. I mean, there is Christianity there in a sense, but it's also very, very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and I think it's really, really, really similar to what the Catholic Church was doing in the early 1500s, where it's like, yeah, you can kind of see Jesus through the fog, but you've added so much stuff to it. Like Christ is gone. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. I can't get to him because you added so many layers to our faith here. And that's what Ethiopia has very much done just a little bit earlier than the Catholic Church. And I, again, I, 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 man, I cannot wait to get to part three. The guy who is the Martin Luther, in a sense, uh, Estefanos, his coming to God is so similar to Martin Luther's. It's incredible. And it's so similar where he was looking and looking for God. We'll get to it. But just the, the, when the scales fall from his eyes and he realizes it's just Jesus, it's just grace, like I don't have to work for it. It's just so similar to Martin Luther. But it tells you how difficult it was for people to find Jesus. On the books, it was a Christian country. But in reality, nobody, much like Catholic countries in Europe, nobody could get to Jesus because they put so many things between you and Jesus that you couldn't see him anymore. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So we are put that on the books to get the, the third part out of this. Would you say probably probably a third and final part? I would love to commit to a third and okay. final part. Um, but boy, this if it if it is final and if that is the third if, part, if maybe a little bit longer. If you gave us a percentage progression of our journey through the Church of Ethiopia, where where are we at <laughs> right now, would you say? I think I can safely say pretty close to 55 to 60%. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it might be a little bit longer than an hour, part three. But yeah, definitely, I think we can finish this up. The story of Estefanos, his proto-reformation is super interesting. Um, and the emperor he tangos with is super interesting. I, this whole thing is crazy. And again, as a, people who like church history, you're going to listen to this and you're going to go, this is like, I feel like I'm hearing Martin Luther's story played out. And it is. The only difference is it's like, is if you heard Martin Luther's story, but Martin Luther hadn't been successful. And so mm. it's really sad in some ways because it's, it's like so close reality. to the European Reformation. It, it really, yeah. It, oh my gosh, that's a really like you know how you'll hear people in history will be like alternate timeline. That's what this really feels like. Like this is the alternate timeline if Martin Luther had failed, 
And it's a really sad in some ways because of that. Um, a little bit, a little bit. They do it to themselves. It, you'll, you'll hear. We'll get there. And then after that, we just kind of whiz through. I don't. I, we go through 500 years of history a little bit too fast, um, and we miss some of this stuff. But at that mm. point, we got through the Proto Reformation. So I'll wrap up, get you to Ethiopia today, and kind of go through how we got here with some of the some of the fun spots, but not really doing the details. For me, I wanted to lay down this really firm foundation because a almost, most of us don't know it. We don't know how Ethiopia got there and anything about it. And B, I think it's really important to see just how much they care about the Solomon's, the Solomon stuff and the Jerusalem stuff. Because then when the proto, you know, when the Martin Luther of Ethiopia challenges all that, you realize how big a deal that is because it's been with us for so long. How could anybody say that's not true? But it isn't. And finally, I think it just tells you like, what world that how honestly how courageous their version of martin luther had to be because look at the world he's in it's not a safe world to challenge anything in that system takes a lot of courage and he challenges everything so i think it makes him pretty cool and eventually and then at the end of part three we'll we'll get back to that question that started this whole thing which was so did the europeans steal the reformation from uh from this gentleman that we've been talking about and i will give you the definitive answer when we get to it definitive all all right that's exciting uh i can say with very firm confidence okay that you know that you know okay well i i'm i'm looking forward to finding out because i do not have the definitive answer in my head so i'll be curious to hear your argument for such a claim uh thank you listeners for uh, being patreon listeners of course if you're listening to this feed you're probably a patreon member uh, thank you so much for supporting the show uh, and getting access to these deep dives. I've really enjoyed listening to Troy explain this stuff. It's fascinating. And I'm looking forward to the next, uh, the next segment, the next episode in the series. All right. Thank you so much. This is Troy and Joel, and you've been listening to Revive Thoughts Deep Dive. See you.